This is lesson five of our study on the person of Christ, an introduction. The title of the lesson is The Road to Chalcedon- the Chalcedonian Definition of Christ, part one of two. I did want to remind you of the uh, schedule that I put out at the very beginning of this class. I don't know if it's available in print form anywhere anymore. It is on our website, though. The schedule is there online under Learn Emmaus Essentials. You click on this class, and the whole schedule is there. And if any changes are made to the schedule, I'll update it there. Uh, but today, notice we will be looking at the first half of chapter 5. The first half of chapter 5 of our book, pages 85 through 97. We do not have Sunday school next Sunday. And then when we come back on January the 1st, we'll have lesson 6, uh, which will be a consideration of the second half of this chapter, pages 97 through 107. I do that a few times in this study because some of the chapters are just too long for us to handle in one, uh, one session. And so, again, lesson 5, The Road to the Chalcedonian Definition of Christ, Part 1, is our lesson for today. Let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Each Lord's Day is such a blessing to us. It's a time of refreshment for our souls to cease from our labors and our recreations and to give special attention to you, O God. So help us to fix our minds and hearts upon you and upon the Christ you have sent. And I pray that you would help us in this study to better understand who Christ is so we might understand what it is that he has done for us and our salvation in him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, This book is broken into two main parts. In the first part, um, biblical foundations were laid. And here we sought to understand the identity of Christ from the scriptures. Part two uh, is entitled Theological Formulation. And the subtitle is The Establishment of Christological Orthodoxy. Uh, this, uh, the second part of the book is more about considering how um, the doctrine of Christ developed within the, the history of the church. Uh, of course, the doctrine of Christ that we hold to is rooted in Scripture. It must be. But in the early church, the church wrestled with the doctrine of Christ and learned how to speak about Christ with precision from the Scriptures. And so certain terms were, were adopted that helped helped the early church to uh, speak about Christ with precision and not to slide off into error um, in our understanding of who Christ is and what He has done for us. I want to read now from the beginning of page 85 through the first full paragraph on page 86. Instead of putting it in the outline, I thought I would just read it. To you, this is the very beginning of chapter 5. Scripture teaches us that Christ Jesus is Lord. In the Old Testament, we anticipate his coming. In the Gospels, Jesus is unique in his conception, but human like us, except without sin. He is born and grows physically, mentally, and spiritually, yet he also knows himself to be the Son of his Father in relation to the Spirit, who shares God's nature and does God's works. From beginning to end, Scripture unveils from shadow to reality that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. That paragraph there is kind of a review of everything we learned in the first part of this book, isn't it? I continue. The Bible's presentation of Christ, however, is not the end of Christological reflection. In fact, for the church, it is the beginning. As biblical 
exegesis leads to biblical theology, it also leads to systematic theology, a faith-seeking understanding. I like that statement right there. Uh, Notice the, the progression that Wellam mentions. Biblical exegesis, that is the study of biblical texts, leads to biblical theology. We notice how certain themes are developed within books of the Bible and within the Bible itself as a whole. And this does eventually lead to systematic theology. In other words, this is the natural progression for us. We encounter the text of Scripture and we study the the words and the sentences and the paragraphs and the books of Scripture. And what what do we naturally or, or, or supernaturally want to do with Scripture except ask the question, what does the whole Bible have to say to us about who God is and, and who Christ is? Uh, we, we, want to, we, we want to add understanding to our faith. I like that little phrase, by the way. Faith-seeking understanding. That really is what theology is about. We have faith. We, we believe that God is. We believe that He has spoken to us in human history, that He has revealed Himself to us supremely through Christ, and now we have the Scriptures. We have this faith that the, that the Scriptures are the Word of God. We understand the Gospel and we believe upon Christ. We have this faith, but, but once we have this, this faith, uh, this small, perhaps, and immature faith, authentic as it is, what do we want to add to it except understanding? We want to grow in our understanding of who God is, who Christ is, what He has done for us, who we are, and what we are called to do. Faith seeking understanding. I appreciate that phrase. Desiring to be faithful to all Scripture, Wellam says, the church has sought to understand the whole counsel of God without leaving anything out. For example, given the creator-creature distinction, how do we make sense of the creator becoming a human who grows and learns? If Christ is fully God and omniscient, Why does he say that he doesn't know certain things? Scripture teaches that Jesus was tempted like us, but could he have sinned like us? Such legitimate questions are not always answered in a verse or two. They require careful theological thinking and accounting for all that Scripture teaches. That's what this book is going to help us to do. We are going to ask the question, and we have been asking the question, Who is Jesus? But in order to answer that question, we have to pay attention not to one verse or to one passage, but to all that the Scriptures have to say about Him. We have to do exegesis of biblical texts. We have to do good biblical theology. And ultimately, we have to do good systematic theology that is bringing together everything that the Scriptures have to say on this subject. Um, If we just take one verse or another, we are prone to go astray. But taking into consideration the whole counsel of God's Word, we will come to true beliefs concerning who Jesus is. Um, To be good students of the Bible, brothers and sisters, we have to resist the air of Biblicism. We have to fight against the air of Biblicism. It's something I've mentioned before, um, and and I'm seeing it more and more as a problem. Biblicists, what do they do? They say, if I'm going to believe this or that, you have to show me a chapter and verse. But that's, a, that's an inappropriate way to approach the Scriptures, because God did not give us His Word like this, but revealed Himself in human history through act, and then speaks and gives us the interpretation of His acts. Uh, the Scriptures aren't written in such a way where we can just go to chapter and verse to figure out truths about God, Christ, man, sin, salvation, etc. We have to read the whole of the Scriptures, and we have to trace 
themes out and see the development of storylines, and we have to collect everything that the scriptures say on a given subject and bring them together. Biblicism is a big problem. I, I don't ever go on Twitter. I really don't, or, or I can't stand looking at Facebook. I, it makes me nauseous every time I look at it. Um, my wife can tell you. But somebody directed my attention to something that was happening on Twitter this last week, so I went, you know. And, oh, you know what it was? It was this big debate about whether or not churches should cancel church on Christmas Day. I guess there are a lot of churches doing this. And so I went and I looked, you know. And there's all this debate about the Lord's Day Sabbath. And, of course, those of us who believe in the Lord's Day Sabbath were being labeled as legalists. And, and some guy on there says, show me a verse. <laughs> show me a verse where it says that Sunday is the Sabbath, you know, or whatever. And, and I thought, this is the era of biblicism. There's no one verse, but if you pay attention to what the scriptures say from literally the beginning to the end about the Sabbath, you are going to come to this conclusion, if you are a careful student of the Bible, that the S- Sunday is the Lord's Day Sabbath. Do not ditch church on Christmas Day, brothers and sisters. I, it kind of makes my my hair stand up on the back of my neck to even think about it. But anyways, that's a tangent a little bit. But, but I think it, it, it does pertain in this regard. Many errors have been made about the doctrine of Christ, and, and they've been made because people are biblicists. Not, they're not biblical, they're biblicists. They've failed to take into consideration the whole counsel of God's Word as they seek to understand uh, who it is that Jesus is and what He has done. Okay. So I've read that introductory uh, section of Wellam. And then uh, Wellam says, In fact, the first 500 years of theological reflection in church history centered on Christology in two interrelated areas. First, the church reflected on Trinitarian formulation. Given Jesus' self-identity as God the Son in relation to the Father and the Spirit, how do we speak of their distinction? Uh, distinctness from each other and their shared unity as uh, the one God. So it is kind of interesting. We're going to talk a lot about Trinitarian theology in our study of Christology. You know, what are we doing? Well, it is true. Uh, we are going to err in our Christology if we don't first have a solid grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity. The two subjects are obviously overrelated. We've studied the Trinity before, and you'll notice that Wellam keeps bringing up the doctrine of the Trinity in his study on the doctrine of Christ, and, and there's a good reason for that. Second, the church, building on Trinitarian doctrine, reflected further on legitimate questions about the Incarnation that arose from Scripture. So first, the, the, the church wrestled with um, the Trinity. How do, we, how do we talk about God, the one God who eternally exists in three persons or subsistences? How do we talk about God without slipping into error? And then, closely related to that question, how do we talk about Christ without slipping into error? If He's the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, how do we speak of Him and of His person and natures? Although the church had rejected Arianism's denial of Christ's deity, further Christological questions remained. Uh, We'll come to talk about what Arianism was in, in, in a moment. For example, who is the subject of the Incarnation? That's a good question. Who is the subject of the Incarnation? Is it the Eternal Son? Or is it the uniting of two personal subjects, the Son and a man, to form a composite subject? 
Was Christ's human nature merely a physical body or a body and a soul? So these, these are just questions that arise when we begin to think about Christ. As various false teachings arose about the Incarnation, the church responded with a careful, careful articulation and defense of the biblical Jesus at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. You'll see uh, Wellam make this point, or at least this suggestion in his writing, that there actually is something good that comes out of false teaching, as strange as that may sound. What does false teaching, what good thing does false teaching produce? Perhaps, not always, but perhaps. Yeah, it forces the church to wrestle with the error and to offer maybe a clearer articulation of biblical doctrine than, than had been offered before. And that certainly happened with the doctrine of the Trinity and with the doctrine of Christ. I continue to quote Wellam from page 87. It is important to remember that the church's doctrinal formulations are not equal to Scripture. Yet, over the years, the church established orthodoxy in the laboratory of history, testing ideas for their biblical fidelity. Previous doctrinal formulations, especially those enjoying Catholic or uh, Catholic consent, here's a reference to just kind of the, the opinion of the church universal, universally. This isn't a reference to Roman Catholicism. Uh, function as guardrails for us today. This is clearly true of the Nicene Creed and Chalcedonian definition. Precisely because these rules of faith faithfully reflect what Scripture teaches, they are authoritative for us today as secondary standards. They don't say all that can be said, but given their biblical fidelity, they set parameters for further reflection, and we ignore them at our peril. I, I included this in the outline because this is a wonderful statement about uh, the value and the place of creeds and confessions in the church. Um, what, what, what benefit do they bring us? Well, if they are faithful to Scripture, they provide guardrails for us. You know, they, they provide careful articulations of certain doctrines um, that, that have been tested over time, and he says we ignore them at great peril. This is true. If, if we're seeking to understand who God is and who Christ is, and yet we're saying something that errs from uh, the, universal, the universally accepted statement of the church, we, we should probably take a step back and say, maybe I've got something wrong. In fact, I would argue that it's very arrogant to ignore the guardrails that have been established uh, in the history of the church. Uh, and, and, and to go off in a different direction all by yourself. We, we ignore them at our peril. So that is a benefit that they provide. But notice that Wellam is very careful to clarify that these formulations, these statements, uh, like the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition, are not equal to Scripture. Scripture is our authority for, tr the, for the truth. And these statements are authoritative for us in a secondary way. Only so long as they are faithful to Scripture, of course, and only in a secondary way in that we view them simply as solid articulations of what the Scriptures say that have been tested in the laboratory of history. The formulation of the Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy is the main uh, section that we are going to be considering today. It begins on page 89 of, of the book. And I do not think we go beyond this main section in our outline. The formulation of Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy. <clears throat> to identify Christ rightly according to the Scripture, the Church first had to think through the relations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one Creator Covenant God. This resulted 
in what is known as the pro-Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy, as represented by the Councils of Nicaea, 325, and Constantinople, 381. Two interrelated steps were crucial in this process. First, the church had to create a common theological vocabulary to make sense of the biblical data. Second, the church had to respond to various heresies that denied some teaching of Scripture or failed to account for all the biblical data. Let's look at each of these in turn. So you'll notice uh, what Wellam is doing is he's first talking about the formulation of Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy. The church had to wrestle with how to speak about God, the one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First of all, the church developed terminology to accurately describe what we see in the Holy Scriptures. That's the point that Wellam is making here. And the church did develop this um, nature-person distinction in their vocabulary in order to talk about God, the triune God with precision. Scripture teaches that there is only one God. Within God, however, there is a threeness, a distinct Father, Son, and Spirit. To deny God's oneness or threeness, or to make the three all the same, is to deny the biblical teaching of Christ and to have a false view of God. This should sound like review to you from our study on the Trinity, but you'll notice that Wellam is saying here that also this error, if we err in Trinitarian orthodoxy and in Trinitarian theology, it's going to lead us astray in our understanding of who Christ is. The church chose to speak of God's oneness by the language of nature or essence, in the Greek ousia, in the Latin essentia, and God's threeness by the language of person hypostasis in the Greek, and persona in the Latin. The church found it necessary um, to choose language from their culture, yet to define it consistently with scriptural teaching. Okay. Um, He then asks a bit later in this chapter, but what metaphysical content do we ascribe to these words? When we talk about metaphysics, does anyone know what we're talking about when we, when we talk about metaphysics? When we talk about physics, what are we, what are we talking about? Physical. Things that are physical. When we talk about metaphysics, we're talking about things that are kind of beyond or above the, the, the physical. So we have physical bodies, but you'd really have to be a fool not to recognize that there's something about us that's non-material, you know? So the human being can be analyzed in a physical sense, but clearly there's something to human nature that is metaphysical. Correct? We have emotions. We have personalities. Um, we, have, we have souls, to use the biblical term. And you can't, you can't analyze any of that under a microscope, can you? You can't see it. Uh, but you experience it and you know it to be true. We have a brain that can be analyzed as a physical object, but we have minds that cannot be analyzed as physical. The mind is metaphysical, the brain is physical. And so when we're talking about metaphysics, we're talking about things that are beyond uh, the, the, the physical. And so the question here, or 
Yes, the question. But what metaphysical content do we ascribe to these words? Uh, these words, uh, the word these is referring back to the language of nature and person. So here Wellam defines these terms, and I think he does so in a very helpful way. A nature is what a thing is, or in the words of Herman Bovink, that by which a thing is what it is. To speak of God's nature is to describe what God is as the Creator and Lord, distinct from His creation and self-sufficient in terms of His attributes. So if I ask you, or if I say to you, tell me about God, tell me about His nature, I'm asking you to describe to me what God is. What is He? What is He? What would you say? Or if you've memorized our, our catechism, you'll... You'll you'll have some help there. God is a most pure spirit, infinite, eternal, and and unchanging. You see, I mean, we're beginning to talk about the nature of God there. We're, We're answering the question, what is He? What is a person? Before we answer, it is important to note that the theological use of person in Trinitarian and Christological formulation is not the same as in contemporary usage. Today, when we speak of a person, we speak of an entire individual or of someone's personality traits, or we use it as synonymous with one's soul. But in Trinitarian theology, person is not used in these ways. Instead, a person is the, the who. The person, a person is the who or active subject of the nature, not reducible to nature. One cannot separate a person from a nature, but, as Bovink states, a person is an active subject who does things and to whom things happen. A person is the subject that acts and lives through a nature. Actually, I did this with you in the previous class. I I, I stopped, I think it was in the previous class, I stopped and I asked, what are you? And you all said, human, and you're right. That's your nature. You have a human nature. Uh, and if I were to push you further and I, was, and I were to say to you, well, what is a human nature? What is a human nature? You would begin to answer and tell me about the whatness of a human nature. You would say, humans are body and soul. Well, tell me more about the soul of of man. Tell me more about that part of the human nature. And you would say, well, in the soul there are parts, um, mind, will, affections. Uh, I could do the same thing with the body. Tell me more about the the body. What what does it consist of, etc.? And you could begin to talk about uh, physiological things. Uh, So, when we talk about nature, we're talking about the whatness of a thing. But then I asked you last Sunday... A different question, not what are you, but who are you? And then I said I should hear a bunch of names. You know, I am, I am Nick, I am Ryan, I am Gina, you know. And, and, and there you're, you're speaking to the, to the subject. You, there we're speaking to um, the, the subject that is operating within that nature, who is acting in the nature or who is being acted upon in, in the nature. Um, there we're talking about, uh, with human beings, uh, a personality uh, that is acting within and, upon, and being acted upon within the human nature. And so I think it's very helpful that Wellam defines these terms. 
This is what nature means. This is what person means. As the nature-person distinction developed in Trinitarian theology, the church taught that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three divine persons who share equally and fully in the one divine nature. In Christology, the church affirmed that Jesus is one person, the divine Son, who, as a result of the Incarnation, now subsists in two natures and who is able to live and act through both Natures. So you can see how this Trinitarian theology ends up having an impact upon Christology. Um, what is God? Most pure spirit. He's, he's infinite, eternal, and unchanging, unchangeable uh, in his being. Uh, who is God? Well, he is, he is the one true God, eternally existing in three persons. There's this procession within the Trinity. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Son and Father eternally beget the Spirit. We learned all about that. But when we come to talk about Jesus Christ and we ask the question, what is He? What is He? What, what, what must we say? What is Jesus? Anyone? This is a question about His nature. What is He? He is the God-man so he has an, a unique nature. No one else can say this. He is the God-man. Now if I ask you, who is he? I'm talking about his, his personhood now. Who is he? What would you say? He is the Christ. That would be a correct answer. So he is the Christ and he possesses two natures. But who is he? Who is the subject? Who is the subject, who is the person acting in these two natures? Who is the one acting and being acted upon in these two natures? The eternal Son of God. The Son. Is, Christ, is Jesus Christ the Father with us? Strictly speaking, is Jesus Christ the eternal Father incarnate? Is Jesus Christ the eternal Spirit incarnate? Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God incarnate. Two natures, the human and the divine, united together in one person. And who is the person? The Son is the person. And so that's what's being taught here and that's what was wrestled with in the early church and these doctrines were solidified uh, through this process of moving from the Nicene Creed uh, eventually to the Chalcedonian definition. Trinitarian orthodoxy versus various heresies is uh, the, the next section here. I think, so did I misspeak? No, I think this is a subheading of the, of the main one. You know, sometimes it's helpful to just look at heresies in order to clarify what we mean by something. So we could say what we mean, but sometimes it's good for us to look at heresies and say, this is what we don't mean. We, error, this is an error, guardrail. We don't want to go here. This is an error, guardrail. We don't want to go there. Sometimes it's helpful. As the church wrestled to make sense of God's unity and diversity, a number of false views were rejected, including two views associated with monarchianism. Monarchianism rightly emphasized God's unity, so it was correct in, in that regard. Um, you could hear the word monos, one, and then archos, ruler or source, um, 
I guess I should pronounce those things more consistently, monos, one, archos, ruler, source, but it denied the co-equal deity of the Son and the Spirit. Uh, it took two forms. Adoptionism uh, is one that Wella mentions. In this view, Jesus was a mere man. Jesus was a mere man, not the eternal Son made flesh, because of Jesus' exemplary, exemplary moral life at His baptism, Jesus was deified or adopted to be God's Son by the Logos coming on Him and empowering Him to do miraculous works. For adoptionism, the Logos is not a distinct person from the Father before He died on the cross. Hence, Jesus' cry of abandonment. Um, I think I, I read that very badly, didn't I? I skipped a line. For adoptionism, the Logos is not a distinct person from the Father, but is God acting in power on the man Jesus. Because God could not suffer, the Logos departed from Jesus before He died on the cross. Hence, Jesus' cry of abandonment. Do you, do you get this view? So, uh, who, who is Jesus according to the adoptionism view? Uh, he was a normal guy, a normal man, but he lived such an exemplary life that God adopted him and, and set his seal upon him at baptism and made him to be the Son of God in that moment. Um, this was an error that was rejected in the early church. Monarchianism also excluded the deity of the Son by denying his personal distinctness from the Father as represented by modalism. Or Sabellianism. Modalism affirmed God's unity, but it denied that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons who fully share the divine nature. Instead, these persons, these person names are only modes of the one God who manifests himself differently in history, thus reducing person to nature and ending up with Unitarianism. You've probably heard of modalism before, haven't you? Um, it's this idea that when we when we hear the Scriptures talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are not three distinct persons within the Godhead, but only modes of existence of God. So that sometimes God is presented to us as Father, and then sometimes He is presented to us as Son, and sometimes Spirit. Uh, so this obviously leads to Unitarianism uh, when it is fully fleshed out. Uh, this, this view that God is one and there's nothing more to be said. There are no uh, distinctions within the Godhead. There are no persons. By far the most significant heresy, however, was Arianism, a view taught by Arius, a presbyter in Alexandria, and then promoted by others who argued a similar position. It was condemned at the councils of Nicaea, 325, and Constantinople, 381, through its influ though its influence continues today, for example, among Jehovah's Witnesses. Yet, despite its serious nature, Arianism helped the church define Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy. So there, Wellam mentions the benefit of battles like this. It, it does help us to clarify uh, biblical theology in this regard. Arianism teaches that God's unity is such that it is impossible for God to share His being with another person. Yet, unlike modalism, it affirms the distinctness of the Father and Son, but it does so by reducing the Son to a creature. For Arius, only the Father is eternal. Do you hear that? You see, these are errors in Trinitarian theology first, and they end up being errors in Christology second. Uh, for Arius, only the Father is eternal. Thus, the Son had a beginning. 
There was a time when the sun was not. That's an important little phrase there. That, that kind of sums up Arianism, actually. Uh, there was a time when the Son was not. Uh, only the Father is eternal. Uh, the Son was brought into being at a certain time, yet He was the firstborn in time and the highest of all beings, according to Arius. Uh, for Arianism, then, Christ is the perfect creature and, not our, and our Savior, but He is only qualitatively greater than us. Um, I think I'll pause here. And remind you of that very important distinction that we must make. All things that exist can be broken into two categories and distinguished in this way. There is creator and there is creation. For, For Arius and for the Jehovah's Witnesses today that are descendants from him really theologically, for 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 Arius... Where are we to place Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Creation. Where are we to place the Son? The Son. We are to place Him in the category of creation. But we have learned that in order to be orthodox and biblical, we must place the Son not in the category of creation, but we must identify the Son with Creator. Um, In fact, the New Testament teaches this very clearly in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him. He was not made, but all things were made through Him. And there are other passages of Scripture that clearly teach this. So you can see how Biblicism can lead to errors in this regard. Um, There is a, a sense in which Jesus Christ is a part of creation. There is a sense in which Jesus was born, brought into being, in time. Uh, We all will acknowledge that. According to His human nature, yes, it is true. But there is also a sense in which Jesus Christ has always existed. There was never a time when He was not, not according to His human nature, but according to His divinity, according to His person. He is the second person of the triune God who has always existed, who is eternal and shares the divine nature with the Father fully. So you can see how the error of Biblicism can lead to errors like Arianism. We cannot just pay attention to one passage of Scripture or the other. We have to pay attention to everything that is said in the Bible about a given subject. Who is Jesus? Well, we need to take John 1.1 into into account, don't we? And we cannot toy with it. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they have that text, but they toy with it, uh, and, and they twist it up very badly. In truth, Arianism leaves us with a salvation accomplished not by God, but instead by human achievement. Jesus is simply a creature, an intermediary figure, a God of lesser status than the Father, who is God's agent in creation, but mutable. Uh, that means He can be changed, imperfect in His knowledge, and unworthy of our worship. Arianism denies the God and Arianism denies the God and Christ of Scripture and ends up in the ditch. It's no wonder that the church found it necessary to address it head-on, which is what it did at Nicaea. It's a wonderful statement there. Let me move through this last uh, portion of of our lesson for today, the Council of Nicaea 325. Uh, The Roman Emperor Constantine called 318 bishops to assemble in Nicaea to resolve the growing challenges of Arianism. 
The Arians presented a statement that denied Christ's deity, but the vast majority of the bishops rejected Arianism, deeming it heretical. The concern of the council was to confess belief in one God, the true Father and His Son, who both share fully the divine nature. Not much was said about the Holy Spirit. That came later at Constantinople in 381, where Trinitarian Orthodoxy was most fully stated. The Nicene Creed in its 381 edition show, uh, reads as follows. And I did want to read it uh, with you, though I did not want to print it out. Page 95. And it spills onto page 96. Here is the Nicene Creed in its 381 edition. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, notice this, before all worlds. So, is the Son begotten of the Father? Yes. But when? Before all worlds, that is to say, in eternity. Before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That's important. Begotten, not made. We're not talking about an act of creation here. We are saying that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, being of one substance, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Notice, which category does the Nicene Creed stick the Son into? Creator or creation? Creator. All things were made through Him. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in, one hold, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So, a wonderful statement establishing a Trinitarian orthodoxy and putting down the air of Arianism. Notice a few things about uh, this creed, and I've already hinted at them in the reading of it. First, the most significant teaching of Nicaea is the Son's full divinity, something that the church had always confessed, but that Arianism rejected. The affirmation is taught in the phrase that the Son is of one substance with the Father. The Son is not merely from God, that is, that is true of all creatures. Instead, instead, the Son's nature is identical with the Father's nature. The Son is light of light, very God of very God. Second, the Creed also affirms the eternal personal distinctness of the Son from the Father. Since the Father, Son, and Spirit share the same nature, how are they to be distinguished? We can't distinguish Him by divine attributes, because they, e they equally and fully share them. The only way we can distinguish between the divine, the divine persons is by their personal relations. 
which the Creed teaches by the phrase, begotten of the Father. This phrase refers to the eternal relations between the persons of the Father and Son, also known as the eternal relations of origins, or the divine processions that is reflected in a specific taxis between them. This should sound familiar from our study on the Trinity. How are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit distinguished from one another? Uh, well, we must talk about their persons, and we must talk about this eternal uh, procession or this generation of, uh, Father, Son, of, of the Son and the Spirit from the Father. Third, Nicaea rightly locates the reason for the Incarnation. This is so important. Third, Nicaea rightly locates the reason for the Incarnation within God's plan to redeem us. It speaks of the Incarnation and the work of Christ for us and for our salvation, thus reminding us that the soteriological purpose of the Incarnation is foundational to identifying Christ correctly. The church was concerned to get Christology right because false views of Jesus ultimately rob us of the kind of Lord and Savior we need. That's a wonderful place to conclude our lesson for today. What is meant by this except that in order for us to be redeemed as human beings, we absolutely needed the God-man. We absolutely needed the God-man. In order for humans to be redeemed, in order for humans to have their sins paid for, atoned for, the blood of a man had to be shed. The price had to be paid by a man. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, but the blood of Christ does. He was truly human. But no mere human could accomplish our redemption because all human beings who are born into this world by the process of ordinary generation are born in Adam, in sin, and do themselves sin, so that no mere man can accomplish salvation for others, but in fact stands guilty before God for their own sins and is in need of a Savior. And that's been brought out in the preaching through the book of Exodus, as great as Abraham and Moses and Aaron were, uh, the Scriptures emphasize their sinfulness in order in part to communicate to us, not the Savior, not the Savior, not the Savior, but the Savior is to come, right? And so, uh, for us to be saved, uh, the, we, we need the, the incarnate God to save us. Um, we need the God-man. We need Christ Jesus the Lord. I've left time for one short question. Anybody? We'll need to get through the rest of this chapter, I think, and then um, hopefully we'll have, have time for discussion in future um, lessons. But is there anything that anybody wants to say at this time before we conclude? That's what I figured. Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this wonderfully clear teaching that is being brought to us uh, by Stephen Wellam. We thank you for his labors. We thank you also for the labors of those who lived long ago in the days of the early church, who contended for the faith, uh, and who established for us Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy. We thank you for those labors, O Lord. We thank you above all uh, that you, O God, have revealed yourself to us in Christ and through the Holy Scriptures. Help us to be careful students of Scripture, O Lord. May we pay attention to what you have said to us, not just to this part or that, but to the whole of Scripture, so that we might have a faith that is sound, a faith that is orthodox. 
And God, I do pray that our orthodox doctrine would not only fill our minds but our hearts and produce within us a sincere love for you, O God. May we be prompted to praise. Help us, O God, to come into this place, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, uh, with more love, with more gratitude towards you. Help us to sing better, O Lord, and to pray with greater faith in our hearts because we know who you are, O God, and who this Christ is whom you have sent. We pray that you would do this work within us to the glory of your name and all of God's people say, Amen.